This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. You'll find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Welcome back to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss, the Director of Church Society, and I'm joined today by Roz Clark, our Associate Director. Hello, Roz. Hello. And also by Chris Moore, who's our Regional Director in the Southwest. Hello, Chris. Hello, hello Lee. Now, look, I want to take you back to my Sunday school today. Um, when I was in Sunday school, um, I was given a copy of this book, uh, Answers to a Child by Dorothy Whitcomb. Um, it's inscribed in the frontier, Crook Parish Church Sunday School. And I was given this, and uh, in, in this book it says the following. There is the question of the Old Testament. Many may disagree, but I do believe that only the New Testament should be taught until a child is old enough to understand the two utterly different conceptions of God. Surely they must learn to know God the Father before the quite different and very often terrifying portrayal of God in the Old Testament. Of course, there are wonderful stories there, but many have far from Christian standards of right and wrong. It does seem better to leave the Old Testament for later years when it can be realised that in those days, people were guessing about God and the prophets did not have the revelation that we have. Later on in the book, uh, she also tells us that we should never read a child stories of the God of wrath and vengeance in the Old Testament. It is so absolutely essential in italics that the vision of God should start, continue and remain one of absolute love, purity and beauty. Now, um, Dr. Clark, uh, you're an Old Testament scholar. Do you agree with um, Dorothy Whitcomb's portrayal here? I mean, viewers, listeners, you may be glad that you can't see my face at the moment because I am, I, I mean, I am almost speechless. Obviously, I'm not speechless. I'm, I'm very rarely actually speechless, but <laughs> it is, it's horrific, isn't it? And you do just think, what, when was it you said that book was published? Lee? 1959, 1959, with an imprimatur I mean, you do by the wonder bishop. If where we are now in the Church of England, Almost entirely is down to the efforts of a Mrs. Dorothy Whitcomb. I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't agree. No, <laughs> no. Now, um, Chris, I'm assuming that you don't agree with that either. It sounds very much to me like the ancient heresy of Marcionism. Is that right? What is Marcionism, and who, who was Marcion? Marcion was a bishop's son, so you can read that into that what you want. But uh, <laughs> Marcion would be, what are we saying, probably mid-second century, um, around that early part of the second century. And uh, the main teaching he had was co- to contrast uh, that nasty Old Testament God with the nice New Testament God that we find in Jesus. And um, really then edited, I suppose you'd say, the Bible to reflect simply that nice New Testament God as he saw that in in Jesus. So he got rid of the Old Testament, obviously, because that's got that nasty Old Testament God in. Um, uh, He put it in much nicer terms than this. Uh, But also got rid of those bits of the New Testament because... uh, 
Matthew kept saying about the prophets and talking about the law and being things like that. So he didn't like much of that. So he, he stripped everything back. And what's interesting is that he's the first person to come up with a canon of scripture. And yet the canon of scripture he came up was him taking his own viewpoints and imposing it upon scripture and just getting rid of the bits with which he didn't agree. And yes. A, yes. And so against that, that's why we end up with all these other canons that ended up being written. It's a very sounds very modern, doesn't he? I, 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 well, I, I have my hackles slightly rising about some of the way that that Chris described that. Um, when we say he was the first person to come up with the canon of scripture, I mean a there was already a, a Jewish canon of scripture from you know at least a hundred years, but several, really several hundred years previously. And True. second, a canon isn't just about a written list it is about the recognition by the church of the books of scripture now marcion was very early like chris said in the sort of second century and the process of the new testament canon being uh, formed and agreed was still happening and there wasn't yet a written list in the way that we would be able to say look here's the list of new testament books but it was already happening and and agreed even if it wasn't in that that kind of format. So it wasn't that he invented the idea, for example, of canons. Um, he he just um, wrote his down. Mm, OK, well, we can go with that. But let's think about what he actually said about the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Ros, can we think of any reasons why we might want to use the Old Testament today, even even with children? Um, so Dorothy Whitcomb was advising my parents in this book um, not to teach me the Old Testament. But are there good reasons to be? I mean, there the are. Old Testament? There are a lot of good reasons to read the Old Testament, and it saddens me so much. I'm going to just say, to begin with, it saddens me so much that in the church, and I include within that specifically evangelical churches, quite often sometimes more evangelical churches than not how little Old Testament is read and taught and studied in our churches. I say especially evangelical churches, because at least if you are in a church where you read the lectionary, you get an Old Testament reading and a psalm, as well as your New Testament and gospel reading every mm -hmm. week, even mm -hmm. if those aren't preached on. So it really saddens me that that we don't do that. But, I mean, I have a whole list of reasons. I think the most obvious I want to say is if we believe that scripture is God's word, which I take it we do, and which the New Testament itself says it is. So Paul says, all scripture is God breathed. The scripture that he's talking about there is only the Old Testament, because that's all that was written when he said that. So if the whole Bible, and especially the Old Testament, is God's word, I mean, why wouldn't you want to read it? Why would you want to say, well, I want to know God, and I want to worship God and I want to understand what he's saying to me, but I'm only going to read, I don't know, 20% of it, 25% of it, something like that. I mean, it's bonkers, absolutely bonkers. <laughs> why, why would you just shoot yourself in the foot like that? He's given you all of this. So, you know, read it. Um, and the second thing, and again, I think this speaks quite specifically to the error that Marcion made and also your Dorothy lady and lots and lots of people in the church, is this idea that somehow there is a different God. So Marcion was very explicit about this, this Hebrew mm -hmm. God that he described, 
was a, an entirely different God from the one that Jesus reveals to us in the New Testament. Mm. And that is a very common image, this idea of the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. But actually, God has not changed. In the New Testament, he is still described as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Yes. That is the same God that they had in the Old Testament. So given that God is the same God and God by his very nature is unchanging, then of course we want to read the Old Testament to find out everything we can about this God whom we worship. So, I mean, it it just seems like a no-brainer to me. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Someone else want to come in on that? Well, I, I, I'll just I think, keep going otherwise. <laughs> I, th- I, I think one, one other reason why we'd read the Old Testament is if we want to have a, a Christ-like um, approach to the Bible, then Christ argued from the Old Testament. He read it. He read from the prophet Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry. And I think what's a very telling passage is that when he meets with those two on the way uh, to Emmaus, it, it's from the Old Testament that he explains his ministry and who he is, and and all the rest of it. That's that's the source material that he's using. How foolish you are, and, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah? And then he goes on, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So Jesus isn't saying just this bit of the Old Testament or that bit of the Old Testament. It's it's all the prophets. It's it's Moses, and it's it seems to me that if we are to be Christian, if we're to be followers of Jesus, then inevitably we have to be dealing with the Old Testament because that's what he did. So I would, yeah, I think it's not only that it gives us a great understanding of Jesus, all the rest of it, it's the example that he himself gave us. Yeah, it's also about him, isn't it? What he he says himself is that the scriptures testify about me in John 5. So obviously we want to read anything that teaches us about him. Exactly. Even if you think somehow he's a different New Testament God, if he's saying you'll find out about me in the Old Testament then you need to go and read the Old Testament to find out about him and who he is and what he came to do and the gospel that he brings us. I think, I mean, in general, it's not a great reading strategy of any book to start three quarters of the way through and expect to be able to pick up what's happening. But that is certainly true of the Bible, isn't it? If you just start reading the New Testament and Often we suggest that to new Christians. We say, well, don't start at the beginning in Genesis because you'll get all bogged down in it. And we suggest that maybe they start with the gospel. But we shouldn't be surprised if if people do that and get bogged down in the gospel. And they're saying, well, what is this all about? Because the New Testament writers all knew the Old Testament really well. And they more or less assumed that their readers did too. So they are constantly making references to things in the Old Testament. They're assuming that we can pick up on their quotations or their allusions or the imagery that's uh, established in the Old Testament to help us understand what's going on in the New Testament. So a really great example of this is in the book of Hebrews. I think it's basically impossible to understand what's going on in the book of Hebrews if you don't know the Old Testament, because it's all about explaining how the Old Testament helps us understand Jesus. Mm. And yet, I once heard someone who um, was a New Testament lecturer, I think he was at the time writing a commentary on the book of Hebrews, and certainly has since published one, Mm. say that 
of course we don't need to read the Old Testament to understand the book of Hebrews. At, at which point my jaw was more or less on the floor. <laughs> but he then went on to explain why he thought this, which was even more shocking. He said, because the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better than the Old Testament. So therefore, why would we need to go and understand the things that were wrong when we can just read about Jesus who got everything right? And you just think, I mean, I kind of want to say, have you read the book of Hebrews? But clearly he had. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is that we need those Old Testament things to help us understand who Jesus is and what he's done. We need to know what a priest was or a sacrifice or the tabernacle in order that we know what it means that Jesus has become those things for us. So, you know, people often find this, I think, with the book of Revelation. They're like, it's all gobbledygook. How do we know what that means? Well, I mean, if you've read and understood the whole of the rest of the Bible before you get to the last book in it, you have a much better chance of knowing what's going on. I don't know if they listen to the Church Society podcast in Mongolia, but um, I once met a Mongolian, Gambat. Gambat, if you're listening, hello. Gambat, the uh, the, uh, Mongolian. And he had come to London to, to study um, at the Cornhill training course. And I said to him, that's great. What, what is the best thing that you've learned in your year studying at the Cornhill training course? He said, I've read Exodus. I said, what do you mean? Are you telling me you'd never read Exodus before? He said, no. No one's translated it into the language that I speak. So having learned English, I can now understand it. I've read it in English. And suddenly I've read Exodus and the New Testament makes a lot more sense to me. And he, all sorts of things just did not compute for him before. I mean, I guess calling Jesus the Passover lamb, for example, would be one of them. Um, suddenly that makes a lot of sense to him. And of course, that is the, the case for all of us. We will understand the New Testament a lot better if we've read, you know, the New, the New Testament is just the sequel, isn't it? Uh, so you need to have seen the prequel first um yes i don't generally advocate ripping up bibles and certainly (laughs) i don't advocate ripping out books in the way that that marcian might have done but i think if there was one page you you might want to consider ripping out it would be that page between the end of the old testament and the beginning of the new testament i think it's the most unhelpful page in any printed bible because it makes us think there is a separation when there. No, isn't. I think the way that the books are made, if you tear that page out, you're also you'll lose a page somewhere in the middle of Psalms or something. You will, um, yeah. So don't. And also, it's just a nice it. page to indicate that we're changing to a different book, and there's nothing wrong with that. Anyway, you tear your Bible up if you want to, Ros. Um, I would say as well that actually all of Scripture is useful for us. It is useful. So uh, Paul does say this, doesn't he? Specifically, all Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness to Timothy 3.16. So when Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures are useful, he's talking about well, the Old Testament. I think perhaps I might disagree with you a little bit, Ros, and say I think there might have been some other New Testament books around at that point. But mostly he's talking about the Old Testament. Um, uh, the Old yes, Testament Yes, I don't disagree useful. too much with no. that. I, yeah. And certainly there were the you know, things which became later forms of Old Testament, of New Testament books uh, as well. And and that's right, isn't it? And sometimes I think we're just lazy about that. So, 
it's easy when you read a New Testament book, particularly a letter or, or the Gospels, and Jesus is saying things like, well, Christians should do this, or, you know, my followers should do that. And Paul is saying, so now this is how you should live. And it's very easy to say, okay, what is the application for me? The application is do what I'm told by Jesus or do what I'm told by Paul. And it, it can feel a little bit harder. You know, you read some story in the middle of one or two kings about, you know, wicked kings over here doing this and wicked queens killing their grandchildren. And <laughs> and you kind of think, OK, how how is this useful to me? I mean, I suppose if you're a grandmother, one application is don't kill your grandchildren. But (laughs) it's not always immediately obvious in that sort of way. And and I think we sometimes approach the scripture with a very activist kind of um, uh, point of view. And, And we want to be told, do this, don't do that. But actually, how is the scripture useful to us? Well, well, again, in that passage in to Timothy, it's useful for salvation. It's also useful for correcting, training, rebuking, but it makes us wise for salvation. So sometimes I think we just need to have a different approach when we come to to parts of scriptures and say, well, how does this help me become wise for salvation? How does it help me understand my sinfulness better? How does it help me understand God's mercy better or his love or his justice? How does it help me understand the promises of the gospel hope that I have? There are different ways in which the Bible can be useful to us. And, and we need to be careful not to limit its usefulness to one particular kind of thing. Church Society is inviting you to join us for 60 days of prayer for the church, beginning on Ash Wednesday and going all the way through to the end of the GAFCON conference in Kigali on April the 21st. We'll be posting daily collects taken from the Book of Common Prayer, but in modern English, along with brief explanations and applications to the contemporary church. A wide range of voices from the Global Anglican Communion are contributing to this series and we hope it will be a powerful time of praying for the Church of England and the wider church beyond. Join us on the Church Society website beginning this Wednesday for 60 Days of Prayer for the Church. There's a lot contained in the Old Testament, which is sort of, as you said, sets up the New Testament. But it's not only in describing priesthood and sacrifice, which is all true, but it's also a whole lot there describing actually what human nature is. That uh, we are we are descendants of Adam, and so we can see in Genesis what it is to be human. We can see in Genesis mm-hmm. what it is to be fallen, which means that you get so caught up with your hyperbole over Marcion of Sinope and his canons that you sort of you debase Paul Ignatius and Polycarp, who were two earlier canons. So that kind of thing. But we can see that I'm, I'm joking, but it's, it's there to give us that idea that we are fallen people and that we are in need of salvation. We can see the sinfulness of sin. Uh, writ large in the Old Testament. We can't understand the second Adam without the first Adam, but we can't understand ourselves without the first Adam either. 
So I think there is that um, sense that it's important because it's these are things which the New Testament took for granted. Um, these are the things which Jesus, when he was teaching, took for granted. And so if we don't have that essential background. We don't have that um, full understanding of what Jesus is doing. And we're very prone to make Jesus say something which he's not actually saying because we haven't got that essential understanding of what mm. it is to be human. So I think yeah, that's... it's our story as humans, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, It's also our children. story as believers too. Yeah. Yes, no, that's exactly right. I think that's how I would describe some of what, what Chris just said there is it is our story too, isn't it? The Old Testament, it is the story of Adam and Eve and, and their descendants. Well, that's our story. You know, we are part of their descendants. The way God relates... Uh, to them, the way God created them, is the way God creates us and, and relates to us as his created people. And then, as you say, exactly, Lee, it's, it's our story too, because we're believers. So Romans, um, I mean, I just don't know how anyone makes any sense of Romans 9 to 11, if they haven't read the Old Testament. <laughs> but But that's what Paul is saying, is we are not an entirely new people that God's making in the New Testament. We are being grafted into the existing people of God. You know, he uses that language, being grafted into the vine. So as New Testament believers, we can say we are heirs of Abraham and heirs of that promise. Well, well, who is Abraham? What promises were made to him? That's our story. So we need to know those things and, and as his, well. And his faith. I mean, that Paul mm. is using Abraham's faith as an example of, of why faith is in the end. That is what is important. And as you say, it's all there contained. And uh, I mean, I haven't tried, but it'd be interesting if you took out all of the cross references um, from Paul's letters and Jesus' teaching. Actually, I wonder how much would be left. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to come to Rome one day. Yes. Possibly. That might be it. <laughs> See what, what big letters I write, yes. Yeah, say hello to the mates, yeah. I would want to also take issue, I think, with Marcion's portrayal of the Old and New Testament gods and um, the way in which the prophets and the New Testament apostles um, describe God. One, one verse I often go back to when thinking about this sort of subject is in Acts 10, when Peter's preaching to the first Gentile convert, Cornelius, um, in Acts chapter 10. And he says about Jesus, um, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what is the purpose of the New Testament apostles? He commanded us, New Testament apostles, to preach that Jesus is the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. And what is the purpose of the prophets in the Old Testament? Their purpose was to preach about forgiveness of sins in Jesus's name. So really, it's the other way around, if anything, Marcion, that the Old Testament is teaching us about forgiveness and the New Testament is teaching us about Jesus being our judge. Of course, that's also drawing it too starkly. But Peter seems to present it that way to Cornelius, which I think is fascinating uh, and should have made Marcion squirm. So I don't know whether Marcion would have included that verse in his canon or not. Another bit to cut out. <laughs> I don't yes. think I don't think he was very fond of Acts. I think it was, um, wasn't it, a sort of abridged version of Luke's Gospel. Yes. And then 
most of Paul's letters, but not the pastoral epistles. So, mm. yeah, so I, I don't think he was big on Peter in Acts. Do we no. see, do we see Marcinism today, particularly in, in our world, or is it just a, an ancient heresy that we can easily counter as we have done? I think there's soft Marcionism and and a more sort of overt Marcionism. So okay. just on the soft Marcionism, I think there's a consequence of multi-parish rural ministry, I speak as a multi-parish rural minister, of the great rush around between services, which means that you only have a, ever have the gospel read during a service because you have to have the gospel read. So you drop the other two readings. This is hugely common around in rural parishes. You drop mm. the other readings and then inevitably you only ever therefore preach on the gospel if that's all if you are preaching on the scriptures at all of course you might talk about what was in the guardian the previous day but if you are <laughs> going to try and preach on the readings then it will only be the gospel reading so i think there is a kind of soft martinism just in the practice of how we run our um services and there's a consequence of the changing patterns of ministry that we have i'm sure there's more overt stuff but that i think is is it's there but we never kind of call it out or discuss it because it's it's kind of un it's not a decision that was taken it's just that's how yeah. we've ended up yes i think that's interesting chris the sort of it's not a decision that was taken because by and large i i don't really hear people advocating in the way that marcian did for a revised canon no. I, I don't really hear people saying oh well we should take this book out of the bible or that book out of the bible in that sense i think everything we see is sort of soft Marcionism. But I think we see it in two different ways. So so I think there is what I would call the functional decanonization of the Old Testament, or at least certain parts of the Old Testament. What's and that, that is to say, well, it is to say, when we're not taking those books out of the Bible. We're not putting a ban on them or whatever. We're just basically ignoring them. So what, that's why it's probably not the whole Old Testament, because people quite like some of the Psalms. And, you know, there are one or two passages in Isaiah that you might read at Christmas time and, and hmm. approve of. So, you know, you, you don't necessarily decanonize all of it, but you don't preach on it. As Chris was just saying, you might not even have it read aloud in your church service. You perhaps wouldn't spend any time on it in your personal devotional life or in your Bible study groups you just sort of set it to one side. So if anyone asked you, do you believe in the Old Testament? You'd say, oh, yes, of course I believe the Old Testament is the word of God. When did you last read it? When did you last actually consider it and how it might apply to your life? Very different question. So I think there's that. And I think, as I say, I do think that goes on quite a lot in even evangelical churches and evangelical circles. And we have to consider mm how we might do that better. But I think there's a an even more pernicious form of Marcionism that is prevalent in the church today. And that is where you start by saying, this is what I think the gospel is. This is what I think Christianity is. This is what I think the core of Jesus's message is. And then you ignore or cross out or in some way... Um, remove from from the agenda all parts of the bible which don't agree with your gospel so a good example of this at the moment i think is happening around the debates in the church of england about same-sex relationships and living in love and faith 
Uh, as we record this, uh, Stephen Croft has recently published his little book, Together in Love and Faith. And, and I think he does exactly this. He begins with a, a sort of case for making a change to allow same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships, which is all based on culture and experience. There's no Bible in there at all. And then he says, well, would this be consistent with scripture? And he starts by saying, um, you know, how, how are we going to, to do this? And the principles of, of interpretation that he takes, he says, as I listen to the stories and experiences of LGBTQ people, all of my pastoral instincts point to a way of point to finding a way of interpreting the scriptures that allows for greater love and support, tolerance and the blessings of their partnerships, even where this interpretation seems at first sight to be in conflict with some of some of the obvious interpretation of the mm -hmm. key biblical passages. <laughs> and he goes on to explain, for example, then why we can just ignore Leviticus 18 why we can just ignore the passages in the Pauline literature which talk about homosexuality. And, and that idea that you can begin by deciding what the Bible should say and then make it say that by cutting bits out. Yeah. I mean, you can end up anywhere with that. Yes, and I've seen that working in a New Testament Marcionite way that people cut bits out of the New Testament. They would say, well, Jesus never said anything about that. And therefore, we don't need to listen to any other parts of the New Testament that might talk about it. So homosexuality, for example, Jesus never said anything about that. And so obviously we can do what we like when actually we know that the rest of the New Testament does talk about that subject. And, well, to be frank, Jesus does, too, because he talks about sexual immorality being an evil thing that comes out of our hearts. Um, and that would include in his day um, the, all the, the standard things um, that we would describe as homosexuality now. Um, so it, it's a functional New Testament Martinism where we cut out the bits of the New Testament we don't like. And it's often um, red letter Christians, people who only like the bits in red in their New Testaments, which are the very words of Jesus. And everything else in the New Testament can actually be ignored because either we dismiss it because it's by that nasty man, Paul, because he says some things about women or whatever. We dislike that or we just don't think it's of the same authority as the Gospels. Um, that is another form of Marcionism. Chris, you got another example? Well, well, not really, but it was following on from that. It was interesting that. Martin's approach to so much of the New Testament was, was just to amend it. So you would choose parts of, um, I don't know, Luke or, or something. And I think that tendency is is there. I think we have that tendency to have that internal editor um, when we're reading the scriptures. It's active. We don't, again, we're not necessarily meaning it. We're not thinking about it. But we have that internal editor that just skips over the bits that perhaps we don't like. There was a very, mm. uh, just one very quick story because I like it. But I can remember uh, reading, uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was a Russian Orthodox bishop in England. And I know we don't talk about Russian Orthodox at the moment because of Ukraine. But nonetheless, this is before all of that. And he was um, saying, don't underline the bits of the Bible, the bits of the Gospels with which you agree, because there you're already Christ-like. Underline the bits of the Gospels with which you disagree, because that's where God still needs to work with you. Uh -huh. nice. that's, I like that. That's a great 
Great line. Um, I just wanted to point out that one place we're all very familiar with this sort of Marcionism is in the lectionary, uh, which frequently <laughs> chooses not to include and therefore functionally decanonizes um, some of the, in inverted commas, difficult parts of scripture. And it's easy for us, I think, as evangelicals, therefore, to be dismissive of, dismissive of that. In my church, we read the whole Bible and, you know, we don't miss out the difficult verses. But actually, just as Chris says, unless you're tackling those difficult passages head on, you can effectively be doing the same thing. Those difficult verses that you find hardest to understand, hardest to see how do these fit with what I know to be true from the rest of Scripture, how do they force me to think better, to understand everything else better? Because we know that God is true and trustworthy and consistent. And so we need those verses uh, to be the ones that point us to a better understanding. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Ros Clark and Chris Moore, to uh, uh, look in this heresy half hour at uh, Marcion and Marcionism, cutting out the Old Testament, functional decanonization, functionally getting rid of bits of scripture uh, and things like that. It's been a fascinating, fascinating half an hour. Thank you for joining us. Uh, do tune in again to the Church Society podcast for more heresy half hours uh, and other good things in the future. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.